Okay, so um, welcome everyone to the second episode of the Silk Roads and Monsoons Winds podcast, a podcast in everything modern Asia. Uh, I'm your host, Imran. You can find me on Twitter at MalayBoy97. Uh, joining me today is Mr. Mani Mukda Sharma. He's the current news editor for the Times of India, a military history enthusiast and a aficionado of quizzing. Um, you can find his Times of India pieces on his blog, Passing Shot. And um, as I think, as you told me yesterday, you are currently writing a book on Akbar the Great, am I mistaken? No, oh, that is true. And hello, everyone. This is Mani Mukda Sharma. And thank you very much, Imran, for having me uh, on your show. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for joining me. That's very kind. Um, when, oh, exactly is, uh, when exactly do you plan to release this book and what can readers expect from it? Um, well, uh, that really depends on my publisher. But we are looking <laughs> at uh, sometime uh, in the middle of this year. Okay. It has been announced already that uh, hmm. it's coming out uh, sometime in the middle of uh, this year. And uh, I'm really hoping that it would be um, accepted and uh, by the readers and mm. hopefully by people like you <laughs> and your audience, <laughs> because it's I, I haven't really uh, written it only for Indians. I believe uh, something like that should really have a global reach. Yes. So yes. Uh, I try to connect as as many global trends as possible in that. I'll not reveal too much about the book because that would really. Uh, Kill yeah, the no, surprise. no spoilers yeah. yet. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> Absolutely. Keep, keep us in but, suspense. Yeah. But yes, it's 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 on the it's on the Mughals, the Mughal Empire. Now specifically Akbar or just the Mughals in general? No, specifically Akbar, but right. uh, I'm also tracing the general history of the Mughal Empire and that. Okay. Um, um, of course, not going into specifics, but uh, it's essentially a character sketch, a profile sketch of Emperor Akbar and the times that he lived in and. And how do we look at him from a 21st century perspective? Okay, uh, I mean, right. that is really uh, something which historians generally tend to avoid mm. um, when you're writing about any uh, early modern ruler. Mm. Um, you tend to uh, argue that you know we need to see them in their own context. Of course, that's what I'm doing as well. But at the same time, I'm trying to uh, look at him from the modern perspective because uh, that's where all the politics lies of our times. Yes, of course. And in our, in my country, uh, that has been uh, uh, a focal point of debate hmm. ever since uh, a new government came to power in 2014. And suddenly yeah. all the Muslim rulers of India of the past, they suddenly became topics of discussion. And not just topics of discussion, by the way. They even became electoral issues. Hmm. Okay. And in fact, elections have been fought in the name of... Uh, Akbar and, and Aurangzeb and Alauddin Khilji and Tipu Sultan. These are all, you know, hmm. kings of our past. And uh, of course, the names have been used as sticks to beat the Muslims with. So that's why, uh, yeah. um, that's why I thought I would write a book on that. Well, I think so, uh, we'll all be uh, excited to read it. Um, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm pretty much counting on that. <laughs> so, um, as for those of you who listened to the first podcast, we were discussing at the, the first podcast was my uh, one of my passions, which is politics. Today, we're going to discuss another passion of mine, which is history, in this case, specifically military history um, and more specifically Indian military history. So um, I'm just curious to know, how did you uh, became how did you become passionate about military history? What what was the uh, impetus to kind of delve into this? 
Okay, I think that's a that's a good question. Um, I mean, this is not something I've really. Uh, no, nobody has asked me that, and <laughs> I I haven't really asked myself that question as well. Mm. So um, I think um, I, I remember distinctly that uh, my interest in military uh, uh, history, in fact, in history as well as military history, arose uh, when uh, in the late eighties, nineteen eighties, there was a TV show. Okay. Um, called uh, the Sword of Tipu Sultan, mm. and it was a biopic on him. Of course, a uh, a very positive portrayal of Tipu Sultan. Yes, um, but it was made like a film. And uh, in the nineteen eighties, when uh, television technology was not so advanced, when we saw uh, footage like that, it was made with. Uh, film cameras okay so it was made like a movie yes and it had a very grand uh, uh, cast the most popular actors film actors as well as television actors theater actors of the time very good actors all of them of course mm. so they were uh, they were uh, playing different roles in the serial and what really uh, attracted me was the battle scenes yes okay? And I think, and when I look back at it today, I think that uh, the battle scenes were even more grand um, than than they were in reality in, in Tipu Sultan's own times. Okay, and the depictions were perhaps uh, a little more Mughal than mm. Tipu, but uh, of course, to my mind at that time, and I was just uh, not even ten years old, so at that time, uh, those you know gripping scenes the battle scenes with, with cannon bursts and and cavalry charges uh, all of that happening in different episodes and these used to happen more frequently okay and uh, so uh, that really attracted me so i would always look forward to other television programs where you know you could hear or see those uh, those cannon bursts and and cavalry charges mm. so um, and i think uh, that really cast an impression in my mind that okay this is something that i really like so when you like something when so early on you tend to you know when you grow up then you tend to uh, that that liking stays with you it only uh, becomes more strong mm. so uh, and of course every boy of my age when i was growing up in school used to uh, be a fan of the indian military okay yes so um, and we used to hear you know things like and of course insurgency in kashmir had started and so the glory and 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 the sacrifice of the indian troops used to be uh, broadcast by television uh, well, the state broadcaster as well as the newspapers mm. and magazines and then there were movies in the 90s uh, there was a movie called border which talked about the india pakistan war of 1971 mm. And uh, so that really inspired a lot of us. So I was in school, and uh, you hear, you saw all those, you know, very patriotic scenes until on on, on the silver screen, and um, so automatically uh, you uh, had a feeling within you that you wanted to uh, be a soldier when you grow up. And then when I was again in school, we had the Kargil War. So that was, I think, a uh, an event that really triggered uh, my interest specifically in military. Mm. Um, because that was when I was growing up and I was sufficiently uh, big enough to understand what was happening. 
and uh, the stories of sacrifice and the images and and we had satellite news channels reporting from the battlefront at that time so all that daily footage used to come in and the commentaries and all that so i really wanted to uh, be a soldier at that time you know every yeah. young boy of my age wanted to just pick up a gun and go to the front of course that did not happen and i did not eventually join the military hmm. but the interest stayed on pretty much and um, then when i was in college and i passed out of the university i realized that this is one aspect of history that i really want to uh, work on further yes and thankfully uh, when i joined this profession and specifically the times of india where i am currently working they really encouraged my passion so i eventually uh, became a a writer of military history or a commentator on military history so that's uh, to give you the journey in short yeah i think um i i am very excited for this conversation because as someone who's very much into reading uh, military history like you um something i've always noticed is that there's always a huge there's huge libraries of military history on say like british military history or american military yeah. history or world war 1 and world war 2 but right. i've noticed that india seems to be largely ignored until maybe quite recently right um, i mean why why do you think that is do you think it's cuz part of me sometimes feels that maybe it's based on this stereotype of you know the gandhian legacy of non-violence and indians as is very maybe inherently peaceful people do you think that's kind of um affected the well, yeah. that probably uh, influenced our understanding of conflicts uh, in a way but uh, i i don't think that is uh, true in its entirety yes um i think what has happened is um there is actually no clear memory of any war in india okay the last real conflict that ever happened in the indian subcontinent was the revolt of 1857 yeah okay Yes and that's pretty far removed in time for anyone to have any living memory mm. of the conflict what really survived were those uh, tales the bardic tales and you know the the wandering minstrels they used to uh, yeah, relate these tales of 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 depredations carried out by the british and the atrocities on the people and the glorious fight of the people mm. uh, the tales of pain and suffering was what really inspired these stories you know so uh, um but then there was absolutely no no physical memory of it okay mm-hmm. so uh, when you have the first world war you have the second world war happen these are not really touching indian shores right mm-hmm. so you yeah. have indians going out to different parts of the globe to fight uh, those wars but then it at home there was not much happening of course there was panic there was a, in the first world war you had a german ship bomb uh, the southern coast hmm. and suddenly in, in that part of the country there was some panic and uh, 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 and some consciousness perhaps that okay there's a global yes. conflict which is happening but in the rest of the country and especially the uh, punjab where where uh, yeah, you had the maximum recruitment taking place for the indian army so there was consciousness that okay our men are going out to fight but then that that feeling Uh, that you know when when you have a real war happening right at your door, doorstep you tend to get a different feeling from that than a a second hand experience where somebody you, you have in your family who goes out to a foreign field fights a war and comes back and tells you tales what he saw so the two experiences are very different 
Yes. Right. So uh, that that memory of a real war was never there. So even in independent India, we have had fought uh, uh, we have fought three wars, full scale wars in forty eight and sixty five, in seventy one and eight, and a limited intensity conflict in ninety nine and again in nineteen sixty two with the Chinese. But these all these conflicts have been confined to the borders of the country, yes. right? Where where only the locals, say Kashmiris, have experienced some some tension, and maybe the frontier areas of Punjab in '65, mm. they experienced that. But otherwise, the, in, the vast majority of the country had absolutely no experience, no sense of the war. So when you don't experience something like that, you don't really uh, uh, develop a culture where you know the war memory is honored and remembered and shared. So maybe let's start at. Um... Let's talk about warfare in India in the pre-colonial period. Right. You mentioned you were writing a book on Akbar the Great, and I think that's a, that's a great place to start in the sense of um, looking at the Mughal dynasties. Um, right. So as most people know, India was under the rule of a single Muslim family for about 200 years. Uh, I say about effective rule for about 200 years. Right. Uh, from about the 16th to the 18th century. Um, how exactly were the Mughals able to conquer most of the subcontinent? What was their, like, what was the the character of warfare on this, in the subcontinent during this period, and how were the Mughals able to um, uh, militarily defeat all your enemies? I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, well, see, the Mughals, and if we talk about that them, then we also actually need to go a little further back in time mm. because. Um, the Mughals are not operating in isolation. Yes. And that was uh, a period when you have several Turkoman, uh, Turkic dynasties come up in Central Asia. It's really the post-Mongol period hmm. where you have these uh, different sultanates and uh, in different parts of the world, in, in, in Central Asia and then going as far as West Asia and also to the gates of Europe, you see the Osman dynasty or the Ottoman Empire, which comes up. Mm. These are Turkic people again. And you see the Safavids have their own empire in Persia. And you have the Mughals here. And uh, the warfare, uh, their warfare was, uh, uh, there was no uniform way of defining a Mughal uh, way of war. Mm. I, I don't think there's any way of war, not even that Western way of war, which they often talk about. Yes. Um, because everyone... Uh, had their own styles and there's no one uniform Western way of fighting and one uniform Eastern way of fighting. The Mughals really uh, fought like uh, um, how other Central Asians used to fight. And uh, if you would see that uh, Babur, when he comes to India, he he brings with him a, a small army, a relatively small army, of just about 11,000. And I, I think that even the fighting component even was even smaller than that. Yes. Because Barber in his own memoirs, he talks about uh, at one instance when he's crossing the Indus and he doesn't really know how many people he has. And he says that probably uh, he was advised that about just about 6,000 odd people are there with him who can actually uh, bear arms. So, uh, but then let's just go with the conventional estimate that if he had about 11,000 troops with him when he uh, challenged the Lothis who were uh, the ruling dynasty in in India, in North India at least at oh. that time, and uh, he brings his uh, his artillery, which he gets from the Turks, 
and he challenges the Lothis and he wins the day at Panipat in 1526. Hmm. Now, of course, a lot, a lot of emphasis has been laid on the use of gunpowder weapons. Yes, I was going to add that, yeah, as, as you said, the Mughal Empire has been referred to as a gunpowder empire. And the, right. there's this notion that gunpowders, guns and firearms were some kind of revolutionary introduction into the subcontinent that allowed them to win. Right. Uh, but that is not so, really. But if you would, uh, I think uh, that used to be the traditional view. And and Hodson and and uh, um, his partner, when he, they, they gave the theory that these were essentially... Uh, the gunpowder empires, the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals of India. But um, that is a very uh, doubtful uh, claim to make because gunpowder was not really essential for their rise. You'll see the Ottoman Empire and the Safavid empires are already empires before they take up gunpowder weapons. The Mughals come, they they learn from uh, what the Persians uh, experienced at, at, at Chaldoran, um, in 1514, the Chaldoran is that uh, very, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's an epic battle that, that happened between the, the Ottoman Empire and, and the Safavid Empire. So it was essentially um, an old way of fighting, which was represented by the Persians, who had uh, placed maximum reliance on their cavalry, the Kizilbash. Okay? Mm. And on the other hand, you had uh, a very modern army by the standards of the time, because the Ottoman army was the first to have firearms and, in fact, organized infantry corps equipped with firearms, the Janissaries, mm. and field artillery formations. So they had uh, really learned how to, uh, you know, use field artillery and using wagon lagers, which they saw in Bulgaria, okay, the, Bul the Hungarians, sorry. The Hungarians were the first to use it. And that technology, and they were very quick to adopt. And at Khaldiran, at Shaldoran, they do that completely, and they completely smash the Ottoman, uh, the Safavid armies. The Barber is is watching it, okay. So he's uh, he's a very good student of military. He was a very good student of military history. So he was taking lessons from that, and he saw that okay, the Turks have a weapon which is unbeatable, and uh, so he takes that. He gets Ottoman officers, and he gets them to train his army to use it to use weapons. Mm. But then uh, his his troops are not very keen. And in fact, his his, his generals, the Mirzas and others, who are either of his family or or they are they're of his clan, they are the most reluctant to use firearms because they are cavalrymen, and cavalrymen pride themselves as being the 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 best soldiers, you know and and the moment they saw that there's a weapon that can take them down at a great distance, they disliked it. They thought that this is very unsoldierlike, very unmanly way of fighting. But then Barber, being a great commander, he actually uh, he makes his troops, his generals agree to his point that okay, this is a new way of warfare, and probably it's good because <clears throat> Barber at that time was a nomad. He had lost Samarkand. He was. Uh, gaining his foothold in Kabul. He really didn't have a homeland that time. And he was looking to expand yes. eastwards. So these guns come, and he brings his artillery all the way to India. But then his artillery achieves very limited success. I mean, that's really what, uh, um, when I was going through the accounts myself, and I realized that, okay, 
probably there's far too much reliance which has been placed by historians on Babur's artillery because mm-hmm. artillery his guns were firing one shot every quarter of an hour and you know in a battle where you have cavalries the cavalry army is charging at you if your guns are firing just one shot every quarter of an hour then that's a very uh, that's not a way to go about that that's not a winning uh, weapon at all mm-hmm. because the moguls did not know how to cool their guns okay so the guns you would explode mm-hmm. so uh, that's not something that they really uh, um enjoyed doing but they had their uh, mounted archers and that is what was the that's what was the battle winning arm for the moguls mounted archers the light cavalry and they practiced this tactic called tolkama which is essentially a central asian tactic where you have these uh, wings which converge they overlap they try to surround you and they just pepper you down with arrows mm. and then the enemy is uh, is reduced to a confused mass okay and then you have the heavy cavalry that goes out and delivers the knockout blow so that's what had happened at panipat as well in 1526 so uh, his his cannons did fire but then those shots actually scared away ibrahim lodi's elephants mm. then they killed the uh, enemy soldiers but his musketeers of course played a big role and his archers so this was something very new in the indian subcontinent even though gunpowder weapons had been used earlier in india in fact you have uh, uh, gunpowder weapons we see evidence of that the use of gunpowder weapons in india from the 15th century onwards hmm. but babur is really the first who brings field artillery into the game but you see that within 20 years of babur's coming you have different indian armies and indian princes and principalities they also have their own cannons and artillery artilleries in place mm. because when babur's son humayun fights sheshashu suri suri also comes with his own pack of artillery and uh, different indian princes of course they also have their own artillery so that that knowledge really spreads with the coming of the moguls when akbar comes but by that time you have uh, the afghans who are powerful you have the rajputs who are powerful they all have gunpowder weapons now Mm. in the in the early 16th century the mid 16th century so that original advantage um that uh, say babur had was no longer available to the moguls so they they introduced their central asian uh, way of warfare mm. you know using uh, light cavalry uh, mounted archers and mughal mounted archers were actually uh, their trump card so even in losing battles we see that the moment they let loose the mounted archers and then all hell breaks loose in the enemy ranks so uh, that's how akbar starts building his empire although akbar is also learning newer ways of uh, you know uh, fighting technologies and he improves his gunpowder weapons so you see at chitor and and at ranthambore and these are the places which are considered to be you know battles which were really difficult and these were considered to be impregnable fortresses and akbar conquers them by using gunpowder weapons this time mm. his artillery is powerful he uses sappers and miners you know he used mines to blow up uh, fort walls these are uh, and then he uses covered trenches called sabats so this is something we see during akbar's time and which are being used elsewhere in the conflict in, in the country as well so he lays siege to the fort of surat where there's a portuguese fleet which is coming uh, to the assistance of the garrison and then he sees that 
the Portuguese realized that, okay, this is not any other Indian army. This is this army is equipped with a very heavy artillery. So the Portuguese instead decide to uh, uh, offer parley and then they uh, try to become an ally of the Mughals. Hmm. So uh, that really changes. So for the first time, you have an Indian power which is coming into the scene and which can actually dominate the battlefield. So that advantage the Mughals enjoy till the early 18th century. I think it's uh, it's interesting how you talked about how the Mughals kind of assimilated into the kind of the local context because um, and I think you've alluded to this initially. You were saying how there's been quite a lot of politicization of Mughal history, and right. uh, I, I've I I always felt that um, conflict during this period has always been kind of portrayed as Hindus versus Muslims, and uh, right. I think certainly kind of the rise of modern Hindu nationalism has kind of certainly influenced that kind of thinking. Um, right. Do you think that's necessarily a fair portrayal of what was happening? Or do you think... That- no, that's, a, that's a very unfair portrayal, of course, mm-hmm. because there was absolutely no uh, Hindu-Muslim angle. Of course, religion was uh, always a friction point. Yes. We have to agree. Uh, even though there was much peace and amity between Hindus and Muslims in the Indian subcontinent, but there were occasional uh, fissures as well. And mm-hmm. there was... And if it was one kingdom versus another, then often you would find uh, a very religious uh, rhetoric being mouthed by the rulers. Okay, um, even when Akbar wins at Chitor, uh, mm-hmm. that's essentially uh, um, uh, a Hindu uh, Rajput kingdom. Uh, so he issues a proclamation, a victory proclamation, which is um, to a modern reader, it would appear very... Uh, um, uh, very obscene because the kind of language that has been used is actually the, the you don't tend to associate that with Akbar because the kind of image that he has otherwise yes. as being a very tolerant and um, egalitarian sort of a person um, so if you read that victory proclamation then it, it gives you a very different idea but then we have to understand that these these were templated documents which were which had very minimum circulation. Hmm. These were circulated among the nobility, and it was occasionally used to inspire the troops. Because then you see that the religion in this case has been used as a morale booster. But we yeah. know that religion did not play much of a role when it came to governance, when it came to assimilation and all that. Because uh, the polity, the Mughal and Akbar is in fact the first ruler who, who separates uh, religion from the state. Move on to the British Raj and uh, uh, warfare under the Raj. Mm-hmm. Uh, so following the Mughals, as, as you obviously know, the British established control of India, first under the right. Honorable British East India Company and later under the Queen Victoria and the British Crown. Um, now, initially, you, uh, going back a bit, you, you, you were skeptical of this notion of the quote-unquote Western versus Eastern way of war. That is true. Which is interesting because um, certainly I think in a lot of military history today, there seems to be this kind of um, this kind of great enthusiasm for looking at the cultural elements of warfare and military history. Right. Um, a good example would be the late Sir John Keegan, who made a point about how Western warfare is about, um, he talks about how it's about an emphasis on infantry. Uh, right. 
frontal frontal attacks, always going in for the for the attack and drill and discipline, as you mentioned. Right. And he he compares that to the Eastern way of war, which he says is about evasion, delay, and kind of indirect warfare. Um, when you look at the the um, performance of the East India Company, the the British sorry, the East India Company army in India. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a fair assessment to make? Do you think that's what allowed the 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 company to to defeat all of its enemies? Yeah, I think um, it's it's far more complicated than that. As I said, uh, you can never really have very simplistic uh, explanations for uh, for events of history mm. um, because you you see that there's a whole lot of factors come into play. Now, um, Western way of war, as you say, uh, is essentially that theory that says that, and they give the example of the Greek hoplite, yes. Greek soldier who is, uh, you know, that that uh, that that exemplar of of all infantry soldiers that you know, he goes for the kill, and, and all their wars are very decisive wars. Mm. Okay, and uh, then of course the other agreement comes into play that okay, the Eastern way of war. Is different because you have uh, you know very vast armies, disorganized armies, and they evade conflict, they evade battle. It's always asymmetric warfare that they try to uh, bring to the table. Yes, that is not true because you have several. You have had several decisive uh, conflicts even in the East. Okay, and if you just see the the conduct of the East India Company in its initial days, what really happens? Um, you have the the War of Austrian Succession. Uh, in the War of Austrian Succession in 1740-48, that's the period, which happens in Europe, that comes to India as well, where the French and the British are fighting on Indian soil. Okay, and uh, the the French land an army in Madras. Madras is really where the the East India Company is 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 based, and that's their stronghold. And uh, the French, the French company, it lands troops in Madras, and that's a huge army. I'm uh, going by that period's uh, numbers. And the English fort is guarded by a smaller, much smaller force, and they have about 200 guns, mm. and just about 100 people to service those guns. And the British, they surrender. They surrender the fort, the city, and it's only when after that the treaty happens in the seven forty eight, then they decide that okay, we are going to give back, we're going to return the possessions, and the French return Madras. Well, what had really happens in between is uh, when the British surrender the fort in seventeen forty six, and the French take over, then the British have their local allies. You see, the East India Company as well as the French East India Company, they are all having their own Indian allies. Okay, they are all trying to uh, interfere in Indian affairs by that time. Yes. So um, the the British have their ally in the Nawab of Arcot. Now Arcot was an original Mughal Suba or a province. Mm. Okay, in the south they had they had several. They divided the empire into different districts, so states or subas. So Bengal was a huge suba. You had Gujarat as a huge suba. So in the south you had. Um, Arcot and Sira, these were huge uh, Mughal uh, provinces. So the Nawab of Arcot was really a Mughal viceroy, but he was functioning as an independent ruler. And he was doing striking his own treaties with different powers. So he had his treaty 
a friendship treaty with the with the british so when the british lose madras they ask the nawab of arcot to come to his to come to their help mm. so the nawab of arcot sends a huge army of about 10000 primarily a cavalry army to recover or recapture the fort of madras the same fort st george now to to face to uh, uh to face them the french send another army which has about 700 indians and 300 french or europeans it's okay, so just about 1000 odd people and this army the indians are trained by the french and they fight the british or let's say the nawab of arcot's forces and because of their drilled uh, because it's a drilled infantry they go for the volley fire and the bayonet charge the the mogul army flees okay so they you have an english ally which is which has fled the battlefield but the british see that and they they realize that okay then it's possible to raise an army of indians equip them with european arms train them in a european fashion and you will have a soldier who is as good as a european soldier if not better and these are the famous uh, sepoys right these are the famous sepoys so it's really the french who teach or show the way to the british hmm. to raise indian armies so the english being fast learners they raise their own indian armies and then you have what we uh, over a certain period of time you have a, a pretty invincible army hmm. um which is regularly paid which is a very big factor for guaranteeing loyalty mm-hmm. because uh, we see in india what used to happen earlier you have forts whenever they were laying siege to a fort you would often find the garrison has not been paid for months mm. so you could really bargain with them and you could tell them that okay we're going to pay you your your dues you just hand over the fort to us mm. and since nobody wants to be in conflict permanently so they agree and they hand over the fort so this is something that the british find very strange in india because uh, their understanding of war is very different but in india they see that okay they are not really willing to fight <laughs> if you if you pay them if you pay your troops regularly they will never desert you mm. but if you don't and then you think about holding a territory with 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 the troops that have not been paid for month then of course that's inviting trouble any indian ruler would pay them and you will lose your possessions that actually happens with the british and the british do the same to indians hmm. so they buy out garrisons and uh, they conquer territories just like that without even having to fire a shot that happens so it's it's i guess it's a way of them kind of um assimilating into yes indian way for i guess so it's not that the british ever had it easy in india it's just that um, they they had one thing going for them and that was all their commercial possessions uh, their homeland was elsewhere mm. so all their trade was international and all their trade was uh, the trade centers or the power centers were located in places where you had the sea or the or the ocean routes mm. so being land forces and since uh, barring the marathas and the siddhis who were mughal allies you really did not have an indian power and 
even Tipu Sultan tried to have a fleet, but then he was not very successful with that. Mm. So barring the Marathas, who had some success uh, having a navy, and the Siddhis, who were Mughal allies, you did not have any Indian power that also had a powerful navy. So without a powerful navy, you could not have challenged British trade. If you're not challenging British trade, or if you're not harming their commercial interests, you are not really, not really causing them much harm overall. They, you cannot defeat them because they have these infinite reserves of cash that they can get. So the British, taking... the British can essentially dominate the kind of local military yes. economy, I guess. Yes. Right, right. And they, they dominated the military economy because they had the money. Mm. The Indian powers, their resources were limited. The British could afford to pay their troops in cash. Okay. And uh, um, they offered regular and decent employment. Because the moment you see East India Company's armies come up and the local Indian powers realize that, okay, now the British have these drilled infantry mm. and these armies are loyal to the British because they are paying them regularly. So the Indian powers also try to pay their troops regularly. Mm. Mysore tries to do it. The Marathas try it with some success. They were not very successful with that. Only uh, the Sindhya and the Holkar. Mm. They were the two uh, Maratha Sardars or princes, the commanders rather who had some success by raising European-style uh, uh, divisions and paying them regularly. Mm. The Sikhs tried to do that by paying them uh, regularly. So, um, you see, they are learning from, from the British and they're trying to uh, play the English in their own game. But because they don't have infinite resources, I mean, if you are not ruling over the entire country, your resources are limited. So look at Mysore, look at Marathas, look at everyone else, the Sikhs. Hmm. Their territories are limited. So their resources are also limited. You cannot go on fighting the East India Company and its armies forever. Hmm. Right, because the English are going to have their uh, armies coming from elsewhere. They have other allies over there. And they have the money. The money routes are still pretty much intact for the British. So how are you going to challenge them? So there was literally no way, unless you had a powerful navy yourself. So... Um, Yes, so the Indians, like I said, because of this reason, they find it very difficult to beat the British. But otherwise, in, in many engagements that we see, they actually had the advantage of the British because they learned the British way of war or the European way of war. Mm. And, um, and Mysore was particularly very su successful because Mysore never really abandoned its own way of war, you know, the cavalry-dominated way of fighting. Mm. Mysorean light cavalry, caused a lot of trouble for the British. So that's why you would find the British describe the Mysore cavalry in, in terrible terms. They would call, call it the swarm of locusts. <laughs> okay, because that's how the cavalry was. They would harass, they would completely you know, destroy their supply chains, attack their bag and baggage. Um, so uh, uh, they, they really had this, developed this way of fighting where you have the cavalry working in tandem with the infantry and the artillery. Because Mysorean infantry was also very good. Mysorean artillery has been written about in glowing terms by foreign observers mm. of the time. Because their artillery used to be very accurate. And that was also true about the Sikh artillery. Because you see the Anglo-Sikh wars, what are the British talking about? They are terrified by the fact that the Sikh gunners 
who are essentially all Muslims, by the way, majority Muslims. The Sikh gunners were Muslims. Hmm. And these gunners are, are firing accurately on English positions. They are taking out gun crews completely. And uh, they're raining hell and fire on the British. And they're terrified by that. So, and then that's why they, they developed a great deal of respect for the Sikhs because of their artillery. It was so, so, uh, was so uh, uh, accurate and very powerful. And you also see that uh, it was at next time with the Marathas later, especially the Sindhya's artillery. It was very powerful. And the British really suffer because when Lord Lake fights his campaign in, in North in 1802, that's during the Second Anglo-Maratha War, as well as Arthur Wellesley, the future Duke of Wellington, hmm. they all encounter very accurate fire by the Maratha gunners. Yeah, I think uh, if I recall, in was it Asai? The artillery was so... The barrage was so strong... That Martin yes. decided just to charge the uh, Maratha line. There was no way they right. could just Right, and the Maratha gunners, by the way, when they were charged at by, by the cavalry, the British cavalry, they feigned death. Mm. So when the cavalry went forward, they again rose up, turned their guns, and started fighting at the cavalry <laughs> mm. <laughs> from behind. Mm. But eventually, of course, uh, due to several factors, there was no uh, proper Maratha commander who was present in that battle. It was, again, I think a, a Dutchman uh, who was leading the Maratha armies. And many of the Maratha allies, for instance, the Gaikwar, uh, sorry, the Bhosla, the Bhosla mm. he uh, did not participate. And so did another Maratha ally, Begum Samru. Mm. She withdrew with her army and her park of artillery. So the Sindhya was left to fight all by himself. So that was one of the reasons. And you did not have a commander and you did not have a, a, a system. And uh, another reason why the British were so successful was because they had their officer corps. The British officer corps was actually its trump card. In India, the Indian sepoys, they really treated the British with a lot of respect hmm. because they saw that the commanders are straight ahead of them. They are fighting with them and they're also falling in battle. Mm. So someone who fights uh, like that and uh, uh, who leads from the front always makes for a great commander. So his soldiers will always follow him and if he's also dying in battle. So the, we see this in, Brit in, in, in the Brit British-led Indian army mm. right down to the very end of the Raj. So there's a lot of respect and you immediately command loyalty. So it's not just money. Of course, regular play is very important. But it's also this, that you develop a philosophy where your soldier respects you because you command their respect. Because you're leading from the front. You're also dying in battle with them. So I, no I think has... also the way the British organized the military was that even if many of your officers died, yes, yes. The, There's always the army else. didn't collapse. There was still right. something over that. Absolutely. And that was not so uh, with the case of the Indian armies, so mm. the in armies of the Indian princes. So if one Sardar, if the king or the prince died, the army would completely melt away. So that, that prince getting killed was a, a disastrous event in a battle in India. Mm. But the same was not so for an English or a European-led army because you would always have that command structure. So if, if a general is killed, then you have uh, a lieutenant general who is coming in. 
then you have a major general who is coming in and then there's always the chain of command which is there so you have these battalion officers who are leading their 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 units their uh their companies and and uh, sections and so every at every level the command structure was pretty much uh, well defined mm. so uh, these were uh effective fighting units as a result the same was not true about uh, the indian army so you have the prince dying and the com- the com- army completely melts away and then the british military officer the british officer was actually a trump card and i have always said this i have even written about it i think it has not been sufficiently focused upon because uh you always tend to when you're writing a history especially if if it's a popular author of military history i'm not talking about an academic author if it's a popular author of military history he also tends to bring his own fascination for guns mm. again to the picture so you it's the less an, uh, it's the less sexy part of uh, military history I absolutely guess. absolutely and no. anyone you see any military enthusiast today they would be uh, very thorough with their guns Mm. knowledge of the guns they can you know tell you that okay this gun is of that make and made in that particular year what kind of an impact the gun brings to the table is actually a different argument altogether yeah. so uh, so yeah so that's why i think a lot of emphasis has been laid on the british having better guns and i have heard very respected uh, authors make that argument as well that okay the british won because they had better guns actually not actually not because the british also had uh, the whole command structure in place they had everything going for them a huge economy they controlled the military economies they got the best recruits and uh, uh they had their own war doctrines and certainly i think you can't talk about um british military power in india without remembering that a lot of these soldiers were actually native indian soldiers absolutely So Absolutely. let's talk about maybe um the sepoys and what what exactly motivated them to join the East India Company army and um also maybe let's also delve into the idea of the martial race theory because i think that very much influenced how the sepoys were selected and all like what how exactly did the british come to this conclusion that certain groups were quote unquote more martial than others but the, the martial races theory is completely bunkum and i think every historian military historian worth his salt has actually uh, poo pooed it completely <laughs> and 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 rightly uh, because uh, we see that uh, if you if you look at the the entire history of the east india company's military in india then you would see that till 1857 their their bengal army mm. uh, which was primarily uh, uh, north india based infantry and uh, even though the, the name bengal was used there was actually no bengali in that or very few bengalis i'm not sure how many but um, the fighting men actually came from uh, from what is today uh, up and bihar and uh, these were uh, at least in the infantry uh, they came from the upper castes mm. brahmins bhumihars rajputs thakurs these are the castes that uh, uh, dominated the east india company's infantry and these these were the same soldiers from coming from these regions which were later uh, labeled as non martial so they were not recruited much into the indian army mm. but till till 1857 these the, the bengal army was the biggest army of the east india company and it was really the bengal army that actually defeated the sikhs defeated the gurkhas in nepal 
and the Bengal army is sent overseas as well hmm. to fight in Burma and elsewhere. So the same sepoys who give a very good account of themselves in battle in different theaters of the war are declared non-martial after 1857. Now, it's, it's very remarkable that it is the Bengal army, the same sepoys from uh, UP and Bihar, who defeat the, um, the Sikhs uh, during the, Anglo- the two Anglo-Sikh wars. And uh, the Sikhs are then, of course, recruited into the, the East India Company's army, mm. both as regulars and irregulars, and more as irregulars during the revolt of 1857. The armies were very diverse. And uh, in 1857, they realized when the Bengal army mutinies completely. So of the 74 uh, native infantry regiments in 1857, and that's about 139 or 140,000 people, mm. uh, soldiers bearing arms, you have only about 12 regiments that make it to the army list of uh, 1859. Mm. So of 74, only 12 remain in the list. Everyone else mutinies. And immediately the British think that, okay, these are not people we want to have in our armies again. Of course, the recruitment does not stop completely. You still have upper castes being recruited they even raised a regiment of Brahmins called the Brahmans during oh. the First World War, which, to, which fought in the First World War. But, um, but by and large, they realized that, okay, the Sikhs, the Pathans, the Punjabi Muslims are, and the Gurkhas after the Anglo-Gurkha Wars, um, they started recruiting the Gurkhas into their army as well. So they are all Bengal native infantry. And after 1857, they, they raised a new Bengal army where you have more Gurkhas, you have more Sikhs, and Punjabi Muslims and Pathans. So the nature of the Bengal army changes, the composition changes. And after the second Afghan war, they they come up with this, they theorize this into the martial races, mm. that only some uh, uh, races in India are martial or more martial than the rest. Mm. And uh, so accordingly, the nature of the Indian army changes. But then uh, you have... Uh, the Bombay Army, which also has Sikhs in its ranks by now. You see the Madras Army, where uh, after the Second Afghan War, they they are not pretty much in favor of having more Madrasis in their army. Mm. And the army is also, again, amalgamated. So you have, by 1893, the Lord Kitchener's reforms come in, and then you, you combine all the uh, provincial armies and the presidential armies, and then you have one Indian army. So now recruitment is again very skewed in favor of uh, of the North Indians. So these uh, the Sikhs, Pathans, and and uh, Punjabi Muslims. Does that does that legacy still continue with the modern Indian military? Do certain oh, it does. dominate? Okay, I see. It does. It does, hmm. it does pretty much. And you see, um, <laughs> um, it's a very controversial, but. Uh, uh, the Indian National Congress during the freedom movement, one of the things that they uh, that really bothered them was this composition of the Indian Army. Mm. Because this was not a national army. And they thought that we have to somehow make it a national a representative army. So uh, they 
commissioned uh, surveys and studies on how to you know make it a give it a more national character and this is one of their demands really that you need to have indian officers and you you need to open up recruitment to other kinds of people so when um talk about partition happened in 1945 46 and that's when that's when in when the indian army was being demobilized and some congress leaders and not just congress leaders but even others people like uh, ambedkar b r ambedkar who eventually became the chairman of the drafting committee of, uh, who wrote the, the indian constitution yeah, yeah. so uh, even ambedkar um he was of the opinion that if 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 people want pakistan let them have it because they will also get a punjabi muslim dominated infantry uh, army mm. okay and uh, so the thought was that a if there are so if there's such an um the domination by the punjabis in the army then the army will forever remain a punjabi army and then they'll because of this cohesion a democratic uh government may not be possible mm. in india that's why the congress party had commissioned those surveys so they were constantly looking at ways to uh, you know open up the ranks of the indian army make it more indian and more representational in nature mm. so that it re- re- did not remain a colonial instrument of oppression and has that, not- has that has that moved been successful has there been more Yes there has been a lot of success because the moment India became independent one of the first things that the new indian army chief did in 1949 was to raise a, an all india all class uh, regiment mm. which is the brigade of the guards okay so they decided to open up recruitment and open up the ranks for people from all places so that's why all india class regiment so that that was a concept that was brought in mm. and uh, but then uh, um regiments that had very strict uh recruitment criteria confined to certain castes or clans or communities have also continued mm. because very recently there has been a debate about the president's bodyguard recruiting only from three castes mm. and not anyone else okay um or three groups really uh Uh, is that is that legally allowed in india or was that just something they were well see this is something which i think um um politicians have not really talked about and and even though you have equality in every sense in india at least on paper um but at least in the indian army because the army top brass always uh, decided to you know speak for the army and they said that okay we know the uh, what what suits the army better than politicians that's why the politicians never really interfere in this composition of the army mm. so that is really that is true and you still have regiments like say for example the sikh regiment mm. the sikh regiment <coughs> has jat sikhs and the sikh light infantry has the mazhabi sikhs the mazhabi sikhs are those uh, low caste converts to sikhism i okay? see so there is uh, always this caste tension um because it's it's more the officers who actually feel it because the officers come from everywhere mm. and the officers they always uh, if you just scratch the surface you would find that okay they do have these apprehensions that their men have they are they don't belong to the right caste so a jat sikh 
سیکھ ریجمنٹ نہیں مذہبی سیکھ مے ناٹ گیٹ آن ویری ویل اوکے بٹ دین دیٹس وائی یو ہیو ٹو ڈفرینٹ ریجمنٹس فار دیٹ سیکھ ول پرائمرلی گو ٹو دا سیکھ ریجمنٹ اینڈ پنجاب ریجمنٹ اینڈ مذہبی سیکھس اور or uh, the low caste Sikhs, they would always go to the Sikh light infantry. Mm. So that those things have continued. Yes, um, uh, that is something which uh, really upsets me at times because that's, caste is a, is a terrible blot on, yes. on India, even today. But then uh, the army tends to look at it differently. They think that uh, they don't want to interfere with combat performance and they still have these ideas that, okay, certain communities fight better. So, I, I, I remember there was, um, could have been last year, there was a, someone in India made a comment, uh, why, why they know uh, Gujarati war heroes. Right. And, yeah, many Gujaratis <laughs> were understandably upset and, and I saw this one article arguing, well, you know, it's because we were trading people, we like to get along with people and, you know, mm-hmm. Sikhs are more martial. So it was, it was interesting how they, they, they somehow seem to have internalized that kind of mentality that oh yes they have internalized it completely but they also forget that the gujaratis even though today the the image of the gujarati is that of a mercantile uh, uh, community mm. um but there are also soldiers the gujarat uh, gujarat gujarat sultanate mm. uh, was an independent sultanate which was actually humbled by akbar But for over a hundred years, the Gujarat Sultans, they had their own fleets. They challenged the Portuguese hegemony mm. over the seas. They allied with the Venetians. They allied with the, with the, with, with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, their fleets united. They fought the Portuguese. And uh, they had Gujaratis in their army. So it's not that the Gujaratis have never really uh, taken up arms. It is just that this whole image uh, is a post- martial racist theory uh, mm. uh, uh, reality. And also because uh, it was a Gujarati, Mohandas Gandhi was a Gujarati and he led this non-violence movement. And then that yeah, Vaishnavite, yes, he brings yeah. that, that Vaishnavite uh, consciousness along with him. Mm. And uh, so that, that becomes the face of the he since Gandhi becomes the face of the Indian freedom struggle. So his, uh, his ideas about um, or, or his, his Vaishnavite ideas about life also uh, come along with it. Vegetarianism and all those things. Now, um, you were talking about, you mentioned the War of 1857. Uh, right. Maybe let's talk about that. Um, so, no. historians, there's different names for it. People call it the Indian Mutiny or right. the First War of Independence, depending on where your sympathy lays, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, What I always find interesting is that the historiography is, has been in contention. It's, it's either argued that it was a nationalist uprising, like a modern nationalist uprising, mm-hmm. or other scholars argue it was more like a kind of a localist reactionary uprising. Mm-hmm. Um, how, would you, like, how would you describe the, the mutiny and what, what were the factors that led to its breakout? Well, you must have noticed that I always use the term revolt of 1857. Mm. Because that's, that's the more in the center. Okay? Mm. It's, that's not nationalistic. 
it is not uh, imperialistic either because the indian mutiny or the sepoy mutiny has been how uh, the british and the west have been describing this event for years and uh, it was really uh, at the turn of the 20th century when uh, um someone called vinayak damodar savarkar who was a student in england at that time he wrote a book originally in marathi it was called the indian war of independence 1857 so this book used the term indian war of independence for the first time mm. and because uh, savarkar in those initial years he was uh, in england at the india house uh, along with other um, indian socialists and french socialists as well english socialists so he used to interact with those people people like shamji krishna varma and others so they um he was really inspired by uh, um uh, giuseppe mazzini and and garibaldi and all these people you know um so the italian uh ideas that's especially mazzini's ideas of uh, of uh of freedom of liberation of of uh, of brotherhood and all those things these were the things that actually uh, came into play when savarkar wrote his uh, his book mm. which was essentially a reinterpretation of the events of 1857 from a nationalist perspective by bringing in this very european way of interpretation okay mm. so you have these european ideas of war and liberation um freedom all those things that were literally uh, translocated to the indian context to explain a 19th century event mm. from a 20th century perspective okay so uh, that's how the uh, the concept of a, of an indian war of independence the first war of independence came about mm. i have uh, problems with that because of course it was not like that mm. um because if you would see the kind of literature that has been left behind the kind of uh, arguments that have been made uh, of course not everything was written down but then the oral histories also are important in this regard because the kind of things that you see or hear um about the revolt these don't look like a a national war of liberation well as okay. you as you mentioned already um it was primarily the bengali sepoys which uh, revolted absolutely yes and, and they had that's actually remained loyal to the british right right and uh, the bengalis uh, the bengal army had uh, had reasons uh to feel disaffected because a no matter what your acumen was you could have been a, as good as hyder ali as a soldier as an officer but then if you were an indian you could never rise beyond the rank of a subadar subadar major mm. you would not be allowed to command european troops you would not be allowed to command other indian troops of course you are just a battalion a small officer um but then you're always uh, uh if it's a british cornet or a young british uh, lieutenant you are you have to you may have 20 or 30 years of service and in the military you may be the senior most indian officer but then the junior most english officer is still superior to you mm, he so he still takes president to you then yes yes he does 
and till the first world war no indian was uh, eligible to win the victoria cross in battle so you had a separate uh, indian order of merit which was created uh, for indians who, who performed excellently in battle so um, these are genuine grievances and of course the pay your pay as the senior most indian officer was still lower than the senior most british sergeant or or the junior most british sergeant mm. okay who was again not an officer and of course you could not have compared your pay with the british officer's pay and uh, so and uh, interestingly of course <clears throat> just to take taken aside uh, even the the in, in a british officer in the company's army had the same feeling towards a king's uh, uh, officer Yes, I, I there was um, tension between the company army and the the uh, yes, absolutely, army, because the latter tended to see themselves as more, I guess, right, yeah, right. And the, the the British regular army officers they consider themselves to be more superior to mm. a British officer of an Indian army, mm. okay, of an East India Company army. So there was tension <laughs> on that front as well. But uh, coming back. Um, so the indian soldiers uh their pay was not enough the raises were not enough and the raises never came uh, frequently now you have a regular promotion pay commissions in india mm. which uh, periodically revise the pay of uh, soldiers but back then it was not so so every 20 years or so you would have one raise so a sepoy who is earning 10 rupees or 7 rupees a month his salary is raised to uh, 10 rupees and after 10 of 5 or 6 years it's again raised to 11 rupees so it's like that so um, when uh, the revolt of 1857 happened so the sepoys would earn something about uh, around rupees 7 okay oh. and uh, then uh, with that money they had to feed their families buy their uniforms keep them in order and also take care of their animals if they're in the cavalry oh. so that was not enough and the living standards were of course better as compared to other indians but still not uh, great mm. so and of course these bengal army troops being caste hindus so they always were apprehensive about being sent abroad because the hinduism practiced in, in north india at that time the social taboos were too strong and it was you you would lose your caste if you went across the black waters black waters meaning the sea mm. okay so and uh, the british realized this and that's why uh, uh, they started a penal settlement in the andamans and they would uh, uh, if if you are an indian who has been caught in a rebellion or in a crime grievous crime if you're not shot or hanged then you would be uh, exiled to the andamans mm. because that's kalapani and the moment you cross the black waters that is the ocean you lose your caste so if you come back you are excommunicated you are thrown out of the biradari biradari means the brotherhood the caste brotherhood yes so you are thrown out of that nobody uh, interacts with you your nobody is going to marry your children nobody is going to uh, give you food so that's essentially a death sentence hmm. so um 
later on, of course, when the British realized that it was becoming too harsh, they also allowed the families to go with them. Okay, right. So you had those uh, penal settlements which come up in the Andamans. So these families are out of their place forever because they they cannot go back because nobody's going to accept them. Hmm. So uh, the the Bengal army was sent on overseas missions, and they loathed that because that was like losing their caste. So you see that the entire 19th century was one of rebellions uh, in India against the British. So it started off with uh, the Velour Mutiny of the Indian Army in 1806. And uh, then you had other kinds of rebellions like the Santals, they rise up. You had the Bheel Uprising, which happens. So everywhere, company rule is being resisted. So this is the situation where the Bengal Army finds itself in 1857, where they're not happy. They want these, uh, and of course, just to compensate the more for their loss of caste, the British used to give them a butta or an allowance, mm. overseas service allowance. They decided to stop that as well. Mm. Okay. So a whole lot of factors worked. And then of course the British, the East India Company was also carrying out social reforms. You see, Sati was abolished in 29. There was, um, changes in the Hindu inheritance and marriage customs laws as well. Right, so, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So there were a lot of social reforms which are going on. And you have the missionaries who had come in, uh, who had set up uh, camps, um, the Sarampur mission. And the, in fact, the Sarampur mission in the local Bengali, uh, uh, Orthodox Bengalis used to, uh, Sarampur became a pejorative for, uh, uh, for Christians, a pejorative expression for Christians and Somebody who was uh, was was aligned to Christians or who was an ally of the British. So uh, there are songs in Bengali that that mention that they refer to this. So um, anyhow, so the, because of these reforms as well, they thought that probably their religion, their caste, all of that was under siege mm. by this new Christian force. So uh, this was uh, the primary motivation. Uh, all of all of these together, when uh, um, when when the, re- the the revolt happens in May 1857, and also because the British don't read the situation very well, uh, they decide to use force when they realize that there is already so much disaffection within the army. I think there was uh, they would just dis- immediately disband. Um... Yes, rebellious regiments, and that, that just caused other soldiers to be kind of axy, I suppose. Absolutely, and when uh, the, rebe- the regiments are disbanded, they feel dishonored mm. because if you are a soldier, and they they did have these soldierly ethos, so it was considered to be a serious dishonor, disgrace, if for no fault of yours. You have been disbanded, your unit has been disbanded, and you have been uh, cashiered out. Mm. Because if you, if you go back to your village and tell them that I have been thrown out of the army, then you lose your prestige, whatever reputation you have built up over the years, being in the army, because the army was seen as a very prestigious uh, employment. So if you have been thrown out of the army for no fault of yours, you have not mutinied, it's just that somebody else in your unit had mutinied, and therefore the entire battalion or the entire regiment was disbanded. So it becomes, a, it came across as a gross affront mm. to the Indian soldier. So you have to remember that as well. So when 
the British go about disbanding troops, they they feel insulted. And of course, that insult becomes so uh, intense to their mind that they are willing to put their lives at risk and everything else by mutinying. So that happens, along with other things, of course, that the British use force and the first trigger is really at Meerut, where uh, the third Bengal native infantry, um, uh, about 90 of them, uh, 90 men are issued these uh, carbines. The uh, you know, famous Enfield the, the Enfield, Yes. And they refused to uh, use the cartridges because of that rumor. It was uh, that, pig and uh, cow fat. Um, yeah, cow and pig fat. It's actually talon that was used. Hmm. And I think Saul David has written about it. And I, I, I like what he says because I, I think that argument is very sound. Because uh, the British had, uh, they were experimenting with uh, a new kind of cartridge which would not get soiled in different climates. So they had to use a kind of grease and they realized that talon was actually a better grease because it was uh, made of pig fat or cow fat and mm. and uh, maybe it would be a, a ideal, good for a, any condition. So they send a whole hope, a consignment of cartridges from England and they ask Indians to use, I mean carry, not use. Indians are given uh, 60 rounds in Indian where that was the standard issue. Every musket that you carry, you're given 60 rounds of ammunition. So these 60 paper cartridges you are given and you were asked to carry and not use them. So eventually, they, uh, going by that record, the entire consignment goes back. So nobody actually used any of that, any of those cartridges that had pig fat or cow fat. But anyway, the, the rumor spreads from some factory in, in Bengal that the British are out to destroy our caste and our faith because they are using uh, fat from taboo meat. Mm. Pork is uh, taboo for Muslims. Beef is taboo for Hindus. So I think it was also used as a propaganda by Indians themselves to organize and rally people around them. Because the moment you talk about beef and cow fat, (laughs) you, you invoke sensibilities that are both Muslim and Hindu. Mm. It was possible to unite people by using religion or a threat to religion as yes, a I cause. Think, I think, as I understand, as you said, there was all these different factors, um, pay, promotion, uh, feelings that yeah, religious sensibilities are being um, threatened, I guess. But um, it's, I guess these cartridges were kind of like the final... Right, and that was the immediate cause. But even without the cartridges, I think at some point this would have, uh, Mm. the revolt would have broken out because there was so much disaffection Mm. and the British were reading it so wrong. They were were ignoring warning signs and that's why even in the the history of the Indian mutiny that Kay and Mallison, they write, I think G.B. Mallison, uh, he writes it in the preface the blaming the East India Company and the and the and the administration for for causing disaffection among the ranks and not reading the signs properly. There was also a breakdown in trust between the British officers and the sepoys. Uh, oh yes, there was. There was. Mm-hmm. There was a breakdown in trust. And like I said, it's it's primarily because you see it it took years. It took years for mm-hmm. um 
and the trust to build among among sepoys and indian soldier and and a british officer mm. and a young recruit fresh from england and who suddenly uh, thrust at the head of uh, thousand indians uh, not always behaved ideally not always could show respect to the indians so i think those things also had uh, had a role to play in this all these factors contributed to the outbreak of the revolt and once it started you see all it always happens that mass movements start uh because of a certain reason and then they are picked up by others for entirely different reasons mm. right people just start joining in and they have they may have different motivations for that for I example look at the people are pointing to the reason why the revolt was eventually crushed was because there was no like uniform leadership it was more just a sporadic uh uprising in certain areas absolutely and also because indians had no officer experience so you were not allowing indians to actually fill up the roles uh, uh of of british officers so even though you are leading your own men but then being uh, a proper officer a commissioned officer and being just an indian uh, uh um an indian officer was i think entirely different so you did not know how to uh, you could not plan the higher direction of war mm. you uh, you uh, did not have any experience of leading different uh, battalions and or different units into battle so an indian officer would be responsible to a particular unit it is it was not necessary that other indians from other units would also accept his authority his command because he is not the british officer mm. the british officer would lead all those units the colonel of a regiment even today um our colonel of a, of a battalion would always command respect of all the different units of his uh, 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 men mm. um but then uh, the same could not be uh, said about uh, the company's army the indians in the company's army back then because if you're a subadar and you may command respect of uh, one regiment but you may not command respect of others other regiments that are also indian so this 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 crisis in leadership was pretty much the reason why it did not go forward successfully and, and um, sorry you were also, saying yes also a poor understanding of uh, because they all all of them decided to come to delhi most of them actually and once you surround yourself you 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 are besieged in the capital mm. you have allowed the british to shore up their defenses elsewhere you have allowed them to regroup and reform and come back and attack you at mm. your stronghold you have not bothered to have different power centers that can coordinate <coughs> mm. and plan the direction of of the of, of the campaign so all these things were lacking in among indians at that time therefore uh, the revolt broke up and what happened uh, after the revolt was eventually stamped out was there any reforms made in the army i mean you already mentioned the fact that uh, bengalis were kind of uh, there was no attempt to recruit bengalis after that was there any other uh, changes made um see the formation of the army also underwent changes like i said and but these were not very uh, uh abrupt changes of course these happened over a period of time say 20 30 years after the revolt mm. you had many changes that came in uh like i said the troop composition was changed mm. so um 
then if you had more gurkhas now more punjabis muslims and sikhs but thans so obviously the whole culture of the army also changes hmm. and uh, i'm not sure if uh, there were prejudices against the mongolians even though it's quite possible uh, before 1857 but definitely after 1857 there was completely no recruitment from among bengalis but there was some recruitment still from up and bihar even though it was uh, down to a uh, uh, bare minimum this is the end of part 1 of episode 2 of the silk roads and monsoon winds podcast india at war stay tuned for part 2 where me and mr sharma will discuss india at war during both world wars as well as in the contemporary era